the so your your mental time horizon, your uh, image of your future self, and how clear that is. When this Morningstar study, they found that that had a bigger impact on savings and savings outcomes than your age. I'm going to repeat what you said, but then I'm going to explain it differently. Age, education, and and income, right? So in other words, it had a bigger impact than the amount of time that you have, the amount of money that you make, and how smart you are. Uh, those you would think if I told you, hey, you can pick from four things: time, money you make, how smart you are, or how how clear you see your future self and you get to pick one to give yourself the most savings to accumulate the most money in the future like nobody would ever choose like oh i want to see myself more clearly right and yeah. you'd be like oh give me more money or give me more time those are the keys well this study said that that wasn't the case that it truly had to do with how we see our our future selves and there's we had an, uh, another guest on the podcast hal, hal hirschfield who's the expert in the psychology of your future self and his research on that shows that uh, we see our future selves as Welcome to AFO Wealth Management Forward, a podcast about finance, accounting, technology, and entrepreneurship. We apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work so we can help others grow both personally and professionally. In this ever-evolving marketplace, we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services. Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success a podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by co-host Mike Niddle, Portfolio Manager at Arrowroot Family Office. Mike, how are we doing? Good, Rory. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for joining me. We have a great guest on with us today. He is the founder of Wired Planning, host of the Human Side of Money podcast, a keynote speaker, and one of Investopedia's top 100 financial advisors. He's building a worldwide community of advisors, mastering the human side of money and advice to enhance client outcomes and ignite growth in their business. So without further ado, let me welcome to the show, Brennan Frazier. Brennan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Appreciate all the good work that you guys do. Every time I hear that bio read, I, my first thought is like, I really need to trim that down. That's way too much. Nobody wants. It. I get bored sitting there listening to it, so I can only imagine how everybody else feels. But no, I'm mean, excited to be here. Yeah, we put on two X if you're a listener for that bio. Um, yeah. So interesting. Uh, hey, so get this. Apparently, I'm re there's one of these books back behind me that we were just talking about. Uh, it's a book on listening. What it says in there is there's research that shows that if you listen to podcasts on 2X, that it actually impairs your listening skills in real life. Like you lose the ability to listen for nuance, to listen for emotion because your ears start training for 2X and then you go to real life and it, it has a hard time adjusting. Or it's not like it, you can't do it, yeah. but it impairs your your listening ability. So if you listen on 2X, just know that you're you're risking your you're potentially risking uh, your relationships as a result. Not saying you shouldn't do it. Don't, don't take my word for it. Just something I heard the other day that I thought was interesting. I mean, that's why my relationships are all going south, Brennan. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> now you know. Now I know. Yeah. Now I know to fix it. All right, let's get started here. I want to give uh, the audience a quick background on your origin story and what you're doing with the human side of money. Yeah. So it, this one's always fun because it's like there's just the long, you know, detailed background, but I'll give the, um, Kind of, the, I'll hit the highlights or the high point. Right. So, um, had in my early in my career, spent several years 
consulting with uh, financial advisors around the country. Right? So going around, meeting with them, you get to see the best of the best, you see the worst of the worst. And yes, the worst of the worst definitely exists. They're definitely out there. Uh, but the other cool thing is you get to see the best of the best. What it really did was it allowed me the opportunity to just talk to advisors, a lot of advisors and planners in a bunch of different areas of the country operating a bunch of different types of practices. So you hear a bunch of different things, but like there's this, there's this one consistent theme that I kept hearing over and over and over again. And it was, it went something like one of two ways. It was either, Hey, Brendan, sometimes I feel like more of a therapist than a financial advisor, financial planner, or if it wasn't that it would be, you know, sometimes I think I'd be better off if I had a degree in psychology instead of a degree in economics or finance or accounting or whatever it might've been, right? It's this realization, this moment where you go like, okay, there's more to this thing than the numbers, right? There's this person sitting across the table from me. And yes, the numbers are absolutely important, right? Like it's, let's not, let's not mince words there. Let's make sure everybody's on the same page. They're absolutely important, but you realize there's a whole nother dynamic. And so, and everybody that works with people and their money is, has experienced this feeling in, in some way, shape or form, you know what it's like. Uh, and so then I would just ask the next natural question, what I thought was the next natural question, which was, okay, I've heard that a lot. I hear a lot of people saying it makes sense, but I'm just curious, uh, what do you, like, what do you do about it? Right. Like you, you, you have these trainings, designations and certifications that help you, um, minimize taxes that help you teach somebody how to invest and build a portfolio that help, that help you teach somebody how to do a Roth conversion, right? Like you can calculate those things. You have trainings for that, but you've just told me that, you think that this other aspect dynamic of the job, the human side, maybe if not at least just as much of what you need, it may be more important. So what do you do about that? And it, I would just get these blank stares and it'd be like, well, I read a book, right? I just kind of, kind of wing it, go with what feels good in the moment. Right. And so it just was this glaring, um, I guess, need, if you're this glaring gap between people saying, Hey, I, I, this is kind of what we need. This is what I really need. I just don't know where to go get it and how to do it. And, and then one day I was sitting in a meeting with an advisor and his client, and I'm going to give the real short version of this story, but basically the guy wanted to retire. This advisor put it up on the board, everything that he needed to do to retire, showed him, Hey, based on all, all the work that we've done, you can now retire. And he put all the facts up there. He put all the numbers up there. And he, despite that, the client walked out that day and didn't retire. By the way, he was already retired. It was his wife that was going to get to retire. He walked out that day without retiring because he couldn't stomach the idea of putting his money in the market and living off of his savings and not having some income coming. He, could, he, couldn't, he couldn't deal with that, despite the fact that the advisor had shown him, like, hey, if, with everything we know, your probability of success in this scenario is well above 90%. And it was this eye-opening moment where you go, huh, this really isn't about logic. In that moment, there's no logic, no chart, no graph, no nothing you could say logically that was going to can be able to compete with the fear that that guy felt about not or about having to about losing his money in the market and having to make his wife go back to work. So you, it was that all this stuff sort of came together at the same time, and then you realize, okay, there's a need to start helping, equipping advisors on how to deal with the human side of working with emotional people on the emotionally charged topic of money. And, and I think that, you know, the, there's such a gap that exists between hearing somebody 
and really hearing them. And, and often I think when, you know, in our, in our role, when we rely on the numbers and what we've really prepared to say, so often it comes down to being about like our performance. And let me put up all these things I've prepared and you really haven't truly listened to that person and given them a safe place to actually kind of puke out the stuff that's bugging the hell out of them and keeping them up. And, and I think that is a gap that a lot of professionals in different fields face, which is they aren't patient enough just to really sit back and allow people to know that they've been heard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. Now, I also like to like pause for a second and say, and like give a little grace to everybody out there that, because we've, everybody's been guilty of this in some way, shape, in some way, shape or form where it, it you don't do a good enough job listening because you're focused on wanting to tell people how you can help them, right? Like as in this role, you're, they have a money problem. You have the money answers. So it is only natural that you would want to be like, Hey, guess what? I do all of these great things that can solve your problems. I have the answers, right? So I, I like to give everybody grace and say, it's a completely understandable, normal reaction when somebody says, Hey, I have this problem. And when you know the answer to go and immediately want to say, Hey, guess what? I've got the map. I've got the roadmap. I'll get you to where you want to go, but you're exactly right. At the end of the day, but people more than they want answers, they want to be heard. They want to be understood. They want to know that you're on the same team. So when you have somebody come in, that's a, a prospective client, they're the perfect client. You can, you've told them all the great things that you do, all how smart you are, all your, how great your services, the process that you provide, so on and so forth that you've showed, you've told them that you you've got the answers that they need. And then they don't ever come back or call back. It's not because you weren't smart enough, right? It's because they didn't feel heard. They didn't feel understood or when you tell somebody exactly what to do tell a client what they need to do to get where they want to go and then they don't actually follow through on it you wonder like why aren't they doing it and i told well it's probably because they didn't feel heard they didn't feel understood right and so you're exactly right there's another there's this aspect of uh having to withhold the what to what carl richards calls the advice monster right and focus first and foremost on listening and truly understanding the person and then communicating your value based on what you heard yeah, and that leads Amen me to, to this. That. Yeah, leads me mm -hmm. to the stat because it, it really jumped out at me, Brennan, that uh, Tim Maurer said that 70% uh, of clients will implement less than 20% of plans. And that leads me into you know the topic you discuss of this uh, goal shift in values persist, uh, where you know there's a, a goals-based in planning or, or in, uh, uh, value-based planning, uh, and there's a difference between those two, but they there's a relationship between them as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, Tim Mowers, he was on the, my podcast uh, a few weeks back and, and I kept telling, I, I told him that this stat that you just mentioned, uh, that it's basically 70% of your clients will implement less than one, uh, will implement one out of five of your recommendations, 20% of your recommendations, right? Now that's based on like true financial planning, right? So it's not just like, Hey, if you do investment management, uh, but that stat, it blows my mind that it's not, uh, widely known, widely publicized within the industry. Because whenever you hear it, the people that, that really care, right, they kind of go, whoa, like that's gut-wrenching. That really hits home. You got you step back and go, wait, wait a minute, that's not good, right? But then it also kind of makes sense because that's sort of a humbling statistic, right? To be like, wait a minute, hang on. 
So I, I don't know if I want to I like accept the fact that maybe the, uh, the advice that I'm giving isn't actually being implemented. So it also makes sense that it's not more widely known because it's a little bit, it's one of those ones that's tough to swallow. Um, but yeah, so this idea around, and it's one that I kind of, I struggled with for a while of trying to wrap my mind around and wanted to help advisors do the same, but uh, there's, it, we, we focus so much on goals and goals-based planning. So what's your goal? Your goal is to retire. Okay, great. And then if that's your goal, then I'll give you the, I'll show you exactly how to do it. Right. And that's, there's not, that's not in and of itself bad, right? But goals are oftentimes, or should be informed by or shaped by values, right? So the problem with goals is that sometimes you have a goal just because it's top of mind. So for example, you go to a housewarming party for some of your friends on Sunday. You come to meet with a financial advisor, your financial planner, whoever whoever you're working with on Monday. They ask you, hey, what are your goals? And you're like, I just went and saw this awesome house that our friends bought. Our goal is to buy a, we want to buy a new house or we want to buy a house, right? And it's not because you actually want to buy a house. It's because you think that's your goal because that's what you just experienced the, the day before, Right. So what you want is not just arbitrary goals. You want goals that are infused or shaped or informed by values and values, meaning your purpose or the things that are truly most important to you in your life. So uh, the, the example that I'd like to give is a value or a purpose. What's most important in somebody's life may be spending time together with their family or their loved ones. Right. The goal from that would be um, going on a vacation with your family every year, right? So it's not that the goal is to do that because it fulfill, it's shaped by the value, right? And by doing that, by going on these vacations with your family, that helps to fulfill, helps to accomplish what's your value, which is what's most important to you in your life, right? And so it's important to just always remember this dynamic and go, okay, we want our goals to be shaped by values because then they're actually meaningful, worthwhile goals. And you don't run the risk of having some arbitrary goal that's not what's truly, deeply, mo what's, what's most important to you. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I like to think of like all of our lives as being, you know, very similar to onions, like you have the flaky exterior, well, how do you peel all these different layers back and get to some of the things that are genuinely the bitter, the hard stuff, the stuff that really matters so that you can really focus in on that. And we don't get there unless you're actually asking the hows and the whys of the things that are kind of on the surface, like, you know, the fear of missing out of like not having a fat house like your friends. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It, it doesn't just by just asking somebody what's important to you or what are your goals, you you don't really peel back many layers of the onion. It has to be a an intentional um I guess that's probably the best word for it. Like an intentional practice and process and create the space where you're be able to have that conversation to pull back the layers of the onion. And, and, and I think that's a great, I like that. And I really like that analogy because it's not, you can't just sit down and expect that the layers to fall off. You have to do the work. You have to know how to most effectively peel back the layers. Well, and, and I think a big thing is how do you get people to be genuinely vulnerable? Like, you know, just the act of, you know, coming into somebody's office and, you know, getting to the point where you're going to have an honest conversation about, you know, your money and all the rest of those things. Like so often um, 
people apologize to me because they, they, in their mind, they don't feel like they've saved enough. And so you realize what a, like, I, I can't even imagine the nerves that some people have coming in and, and you can see how tight they are. And mm. so much of like the first 30 minutes, you know, that I meet with people is absolutely critical for me to get them to do anything else but talk about their money. Like my main thing is to figure out what is it going to take for people's shoulders to genuinely drop? Like, how can I get them in a place where they can actually be vulnerable and talk about the stuff that bugs them, the stuff that keeps them up at night? You know, what, what is the reason for that gap? So. Yeah. And yeah. I know you talk about it, Brendan, about you know, powerful questioning is a superpower. You know, I'd love to get both you, both you gentlemen, to to talk about those types of questions you can ask people to peel back that onion and to uncover, you know, some of those more vulnerable things. Yeah, so I think it's like first and foremost important to note and remember, like it's completely understandable for when somebody comes in to be a little bit, they are a little bit anxious. Basically, their brains on this track of going like, I don't really know exactly what to expect. Like this may be uncomfortable. By the way, talking about money is something that I don't even do with people when I've had like two bottles of wine. Like we just don't really talk about money with people. So now I'm here expected to talk about it. And I maybe I'm embarrassed of where I'm at. I don't really know if where I'm at is good. Right. So like, and so many people think going into so many, so many people that work with clients go into it thinking like, yeah, yeah, you know what? They just, they, they weren't opening up. I did what I could, but they didn't like I, I couldn't get them to cry. I couldn't get them to open up. But what we don't think about are like, hey, what are the ways, what are the things that we can do to address and ease the anxiety that they may be feeling that their brain's experiencing in that moment when they're trying to, they're just try, trying to figure out like, what's this going to be like? Is it going to be embarrassing? Am I going to like this person? Do I trust this person? Right? So the good news is, is Harvard, the Harvard Business Review's done a study. They've done a lot of studies, by the way. I guess people probably know that. But one of the studies that they did uh, was they looked at two groups of people. So they had group A and group B. And group A, they had two people sit down together. They had 15 minutes to talk. And they were the, the question asker, one of the people is a question asker. That person could ask no more than four questions over the course of 15 minutes. So one group, two people sitting together, 15 minutes, no more than four questions. Second group, group B, two people were sitting together. They had 15 minutes to have a conversation. The person asking questions had to ask at least nine questions of the other person, right? So they have thousands of these conversations. They're watching them. They go back and they analyze the results. They talk to the people afterwards. And one of the main things that they found was that the, the group, the person, the group that had to ask at least nine questions, the, the recipient of those questions reported having higher levels of trust and likability with the person across the table from them. So key, key point here. Not, they didn't have higher levels of trust or likability because the person across the table sat there and told them about how great they are, how awesome they are, how, how great their process is, how competent they are. But by simply, be, by simply being forced to ask more questions, to talk, let the person talk about themselves, it created instant, it created a level of trust and likability in 15 minutes that, that asking four questions, just four questions couldn't create. So I think that speaks to, if nothing else, the surprising power that comes from just simply asking questions. They didn't even tell, they didn't even like train them on how to ask questions, how to ask good questions. Right. But what we know is that trust or sorry, questions are like basically a, asking questions are sort of like a superpower towards getting people in a comfortable place where you have the opportunity to build trust. 
Well, and I, I can't remember which smart person said it, but everybody's favorite subject to talk about is themselves. Yeah, right. And right. so when you actually have a genuine interest in getting people to open up and talk about whatever it is that's important to them, I mean, it could be as simple as your family. It could be, you know, the the incredible book collection that's sitting behind, behind you. It, it could be Rory's dog who's in the office every day. Like when we actually care about like finding out more about that person um, than we do about actually delivering our basket of goods and trying to stuff it down their throats, like shocker, um, people actually respond well to that. Yeah, so you guys may know this, you may have heard it, but uh, so there's been studies done, more not not Harvard Business Review this time, but there have been some brain scans done that show that talking about yourself lights up the same area of the brain as eating chocolate and sexual activity. Now, I don't know about you guys, I don't know about anybody listening, but just know if you don't like chocolate and sexual activity, the vast, vast majority of people out there like chocolate and sexual activity. It's the reward center of the brain. And so talking about yourself lights up that part of the brain, the reward center of the brain, which is why why and I, I'm, like if you think back i always i always encourage people to do this think back to the last conversation you had with somebody where you you walked away or it ended and you walked away and you thought to yourself man i really like that conversation or like, i really like that person i really enjoyed that conversation i felt like i could have talked to him forever i want to hang out with him again those types of conversations if you think back to the last time you had a conversation like that i'd be willing to bet a lot of money. My entire book collection back here, by the way, uh, <laughs> like you're worth that, a lot of money. <laughs> actually, that's not worth a lot of money, but I would still be willing to bet a lot of money uh, that you talked a lot more than the other person. What the other person did was they probably did a great job of asking you a lot of questions about yourself. So you could talk about yourself because naturally, naturally your brains likes doing that. And so you would thus like and enjoy that conversation. So it's pretty much guaranteed that anytime you have that feeling, that's why it's because the person's engaged. They're interested in either asking you questions and you're talking about yourself and it's lighting up these areas of your brain that are the same as when you're eating chocolate. And as we know, engaging in sexual activity. Well, and I, and I love to think about, you know, um, relationships, especially, you know, professional ones like this, and also keep the concept of like the first date in mind. And so we all have been on some pretty rocky first dates um, that cause us to say that's the first and the last there. And often what happens in those first and last dates is the other person just talks and talks and talks about themselves and there's no greater turnoff in the world that basically says like oh my god am i you know with a narcissist at this point or you know i couldn't get in a word edgewise and so if we ask questions of anybody it makes them feel important like it means it's like they actually value my story and how i got here so if we keep the context of like treating first appointments and meetings more in the light of I'm going on a first date and what are the things that are going to get me to that second date? Um, I think it kind of lights up a different part of people's heads instead of being kind of the monochromatic business person. Yep. Yeah. So um, one of the books that's not back here is by an author named Moira Summers. She wrote a book called advice that sticks. She's been and, on the podcast. She's great. Okay. All right. So she, and then she probably said this on the podcast. If she, and Well, I hope that she did. If she didn't, I, I give her credit for this all the time because it's great. But um, she says that the, um, 
client satisfaction, this, this research he's done, client satisfaction in the first meeting is directly related to the amount of airtime yeah. that they get, right? So to that point, yeah, like the, the idea is if we're trying to get, if we're meeting somebody for the first time, you want to get to another meeting, you know, you can help them. Right? It's the, the 80, 20 rule. If I remember, maybe it was at 80, 20, 80% listening, 20% talking. That's right. You got yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. 80, 20, listen to talk ratio. So go in 80, 20, think 80, 20, write it on your notepad. If you do, if you write, if you take notes down, put a sticker on your screen, if you're doing virtual meetings, whatever you need to do to get yourself in that mindset, focus on 80, 20, you'll probably land somewhere between 60, 40 and 70, 30. Cause you'll find that it's really hard not to talk of you, especially if you're used to it. Uh, but even 60, 40, 70, 30, you're still tilting the favor in, uh, on their Sorry. You're still tilting things on their side right so you're you're gonna that's just that's fine you still have room to improve but strive for 80 20 and you'll kind of be amazed at what happens and, and the response that you get when people email you afterwards and they're like thank you so much i feel i, I felt like I you feel get, heard yeah right exactly exactly I feel heard and understood let's shift topics a little bit here uh brendan because i saw or listen one of your podcasts and you referenced this morning star study which I, I found fascinating where they talked about more so than income uh, age education and gender it's our view of our future selves that drives our savings. Can you talk to our audience about that study and then ways we can kind of help clients conceptualize that future self uh, to create healthier money, you know, money habits? Yeah, it's that. That's a study that I remember where I was when I read it and highlighted pretty much the whole thing because my mind was blown, right? So let's take a second, think about what you just said. So the so your your mental time horizon, your uh, image of your future self and how clear that is when this Morningstar study, they found that that had a bigger impact on savings and savings outcomes than your age. I'm going to repeat what you said, but then I'm going to explain it differently. Age, education, and, and income, right? So in other words, it had a bigger impact than the amount of time that you have, the amount of money that you make and how smart you are. Uh, those you would think if I told you, Hey, you can pick from four things, time, money, you make, how smart you are or how how clear you see your future self and you get to pick one to give yourself the most savings to accumulate the most money in the future like nobody would ever choose like oh i want to see myself more clearly right and yeah. you'd be like oh give me more money or give me more time those are the keys well this study said that that wasn't the case that it truly had to do with how we see our our future selves and there's we had an, uh, another guest on the podcast hal, hal hirschfield who's the expert in the psychology of your future self and his research on that shows that uh, we see our future selves as basically a stranger so like when we think about saving for our future self it's basically the equivalent of looking out your door seeing your neighbor that you don't know and you'd be as about as motivated to save for your future self as you would be to save money for that person right so the idea behind this is taking your vision of the future, especially when you're doing planning and investing, we're talking about how to save money and invest money for the future. It, the idea is to go from vague, a vague description of the future to a vivid description where it feels like you can see yourself and envision yourself and picture yourself in that moment. So here's what it sounds like, right? We'll, we'll use an example. If you something vague would now retirement is the vaguest of vague, but let's say you even get somebody to the point because you're asking good questions, you're listening to them, you're peeling back layers. Let's say you even get to the point where they say, uh, yeah, so for me, it's I want to take, uh, I'll use the example from earlier. I want to take some family trips. I want to take some vacations with my family in retirement. It's important for us to travel together as a family because spending time with family is important to me. I want to go on vacations together. And most people in that moment, I, I would say that's already pretty good compared to most. Most people are like, all right, yeah, you want to take some vacations? Where do you want to go? 
Uh, well, uh, I will probably go on a so maybe a safari somewhere, maybe Italy. We'll maybe go to Disney World, and even that, even that's good. Now you're moving down the you're moving down the line. You're getting a little bit more vague, or sorry, vivid. So you're tra- going from vague to vivid. But what you want to try to get to is something that's a lot more vivid than that. Where it sounds like my what we want to do is I don't just want to retire. I don't want to just go on trips with my family uh, every year. I want to take two trips every year to Disney World. We're going to stay at the Swan and Dolphin Hotel because that's where we stayed when I grew up. We want to go visit all four of the parks while we're there. When we come home at night, we're going to have uh, family meals three nights where the kids, each of the kids make their favorite meal for the rest of the family. And then on the other nights, we're going to go out to eat at these restaurants. These are our favorite restaurants. And when the kids, when the grandkids go down, we're going to sit around and have game night, game night like we always used to. And when you think about it like that, you go, okay, wait a minute. Now I see why it has such a big impact on savings behavior, because all of a sudden you're, you're not thinking about, hey, should I, this money that I made, this bonus that I got, should I go spend that on a new car? And you get the smell of the new car, the feel of the new car, and you're going, should I get a new car or should I save for retirement? Right? Like that's, that's pretty much a losing proposition. You're like in the car, you have the new car smell, you're envisioning yourself driving around looking good in it. And you're going, I should probably retire one day. Well, guess what? The car wins 10 times out of 10. But, but if you're sitting there going, hey, I love this new car. I need a new car. I love the new smell of this car. But then the, on the other side of that, the competing interest isn't retirement, it's this vision, this vivid vision you've created of going to Disney World twice a year, staying at Swan and Dolphin Hotel, going to all four parks, having family meal nights for three nights, eating at your favorite restaurant the rest of the time and having game night when the kids go down, the grandkids go down for bed. That, that has saving power, right? That has power to actually get you to change your behavior and not buy the car or maybe save some money on the car because that's something that you feel vivid. That's a vivid picture of something that you want to do and something you want to, you want to fulfill. It seems though, Renan, we're working against hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of short-term gratification in, you know, in light of delayed gratification. I mean, we're, we're, you know, working against years of just trying to get food and put it on the table rather than thinking 30 years down the road. I mean, we're inundated with social media or inundated with, you know, everything on an instant basis. That seems like a very difficult task to, to think long-term you know, is that something that we're really working against when it comes to, to saving for retirement? Yeah, you I mean you pretty much nailed it, right? Like this idea of it's the battle of the current versus future self and the current yeah. self, like we always want to reward the current self and satisfy the current self. And for all the reasons that you just mentioned, basically, right? Like yeah. uh, we could go into the evolutionary piece and why we don't, uh, you know, why our brains have basically been wired. Like we weren't built to save long-term. We were built for survival, right? Or we were, we're, we're more, we like, we operate in groups. We like, we look to others to measure our status. Well, that's how things have always been way back in time, right? So we go on social media and we see somebody else that's taking this nice trip with their spouse. And so that's how you try to evaluate your status is, Hey, how, or how are we doing compared to them? And this is all evolutionary. These are all forces that are working against us. And that's why I think when you look at that study of the savings behavior, that's why I think that having a vivid picture of your future self was the number one predictor of savings outcomes is because when you make more money, if you have more time, like these things don't help these, those things don't help fight against what we basically, but a way the the way we've been wired to operate and think for, I mean, however many years, right? Yeah. Since the beginning of time. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Those are the, those are the forces that you're battling against, and that's why getting 
taking yourself out of the current self and getting really clear and vivid and, and crystallizing a vision of the future self. That's why it's so powerful. Yeah. So we, I had Dr. Daniel Crosby on too from Orion, and he talked about the three E's of behavior change being education, environment, and encouragement. And so, and Dr. Morris Summers is, has that application nudge, I think you, you talk about. So, I, you know, we have the education that could be the financial plan, the encouragement is that advisor, giving them tools like the, the visualizing the future. But, you know, I see technology as a potential for that environment to create that environment to, to help them with that behavior change. Can you kind of talk about maybe some technology tools that we can utilize to, to help push us along? Yeah. So, um, Techno like technology, I think can be a big piece of it. Right? I think that's a, I, I, I think that's a key component and nudge is certainly at the forefront when you're, when you're thinking about that stat around, um, 70% of clients implement less than 20% of recommendations or one out of every five. When you think about that, that's where nudge is going to come in helpful. That's where nudge is going to come in and make a difference because what it, it's coming in and it's basically saying, Hey, we're creating your and automating your follow-up process, your follow-up system. It's we're building that out for you so that you don't have to spend as much time making phone calls and sending emails, following up to get people to do the things that they want there that they need to do. Right. You can go to bed. And I think I've heard every advisor tell some story about how they woke up in the middle of the night and thought to themselves, did I remember to do that? Did I, did we get that taken care of? Like, do I need to follow up with them again? So it takes, it takes that part out of the equation for you. Um, but yeah, so I think nudge is on the forefront with that. I think uh, there's another um, technology out there called pulse 360 that does something similar. I'm not as familiar with it, but I think what, what's really starting to come about that I'm hearing more so that I have people reach out to me to, to demo and stuff is uh, these technologies, these tools that help with the uh, peeling back the layers. So back to that onion analogy earlier, right? Like it's hard. We said it's, you have to be intentional. You have to have the space. You have to know how to have the conversations to start peeling back the layers. And that can be a little bit intimidating. Right. And so the, what I know is, is kind of on the rise at this point are some of these tools and technologies that are, basically giving it, equipping advisors with a platform and the skills to have these, I guess we'll call them mean, deep, meaningful, intimate conversations to help basically say, Hey, we're giving you the technology and the tools and the skills to teach you how to start peeling back onions effectively. So one of the ones that comes to mind is uh, it's called Lumiant and they, they, they teach it. It's a technology that teaches a values-based advice process. Um, you use the technology to record everything that the client say. It gives the client, it gives a deliverable that you can use with the client, but they also teach advisors how to have these uh, um, layer peelback conversations right, for, for lack of a better term. So uh, yeah, I think the technology I think is this particular topic, this idea around the human side, I think is picking up a lot of steam. I certainly live in a bubble, but I, I can, you can kind of feel it from other people around the industry. It's starting to pick up even more steam. Uh, but I think the technology piece is what's following behind it and nudge, like you mentioned for, I'm glad you mentioned nudge. They've kind of been on the forefront of it. And I think they're starting to see some of that momentum pick up as well. Yeah. And, and talking about peeling back an onion and we talked about therapy or being a therapist early in the conversation, you know, I, I, I heard a stat or saw a stat that 90% of our spending is emotional. And then many of our habits are developed in our childhood. You know, I, when I was looking at that, I was thinking about talking to my therapist and all my childhood issues. Can you talk about how our childhood really, you know, shapes our, our, our money habits? Yeah. So this one was uh, one of those mind benders or one of those mind blowing moments for me where they say that the majority of your attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors around money are formed before you turn seven. 
to which you go, wait a minute. Hang on. So like, I've got two kids, they're four and two and I'm sitting there like, well, no pressure, Brendan. Are you kidding me? Like, what, are, what are the things that I'm teaching them that are going to like ruin them later? But I guess that's parenting in general. Um, but yeah, so that, that's something that's, uh, I guess has been eye opening for me is the decisions that we, that you, that you make today, you or your clients, either way, the decisions that you're making today around money and finances are based on your attitude. They're being driven by an attitude or a belief that you have around money. And that attitude and belief that you have was formed in your childhood. So it's really bizarre to think that the, the seven-year-old you has an impact on the 70 year old you, right? So your experiences at seven are going to impact your outcomes at 70, because maybe for example, um, you've got the, um, the kid, you've got somebody that's a client that you, they need to start saving so that they can retire, for example. And you've told them that they need to save. You've told them that they need to save and they're still not saving. Well, it's because they don't have enough. They, they don't have enough discretionary income to start putting in there, right? Well, why don't they have enough discretionary income to start putting in there? Well, because when they were growing up, this uh, when their when her parents got divorced, they uh, they got divorced, and so her dad, in order to make sure that she still loved him, would lavish her with nice things, right? The best of the best, the finest things. That's how he communicated and showed love. So that's the message that she got, right? Was if I'm worth anything, I need to have nice things. Well, fast forward 20, 30 years later, and it becomes a savings and a problem because she's not saving because she doesn't have the income to do it because she's buying nice things because that's where her worth and identity comes from. And so the, the, the childhood experience at seven is impacting her decisions today, which are then going to influence her outcomes at 70. And so a lot of times when we look at clients that aren't following through, they're not doing the things that we ask them to do. They're not, um, maybe they're not even engaging in a way that you want to engage. It's easy to think like, man, come on, I'm showing you exactly what you need to do to do what you want. You told me is important to you and you're not doing it. And oftentimes it comes back to some of these beliefs and these behaviors that were, that are there that people don't even know that they're, that are there. Like nobody, nobody goes, you know, what? I can't retire because my parents got divorced when I was seven and my dad gave me gifts and my worth is tied up in the nice things that I buy. It's, it's that nobody makes that connection, but oftentimes that's the root that can be, I will say at the root of the problem that can be what has to be addressed before anything can change. Well, and I think that's the key is awareness because, you know, so many people and whether it's their decisions about money or the way they react in conflict um, is often driven by some kind of childhood trauma, something like you mentioned, whether it's divorce, alcoholism, tragedy, and then the decisions you make as an adult become hardwired in your head and you're not even aware of it. So the chance that you're going to be able to understand that you know, force that motivates them in most of their decisions is probably pretty rare because number one, we are not trained psychologists, but number two, to get people to actually hit that point where they're comfortable enough to talk to you about that is probably a lot further down the rabbit hole than we're going to get at this point. You know, it's very interesting when you look at a, a number of highly successful professional athletes and you look at the number of them that lived in their car when they were 16 years old, um, slept on you know, friends' you know, couches because parents weren't in the equation. Like that becomes the driving force for why they go out and they're willing to put in four to six hours a day and training their craft. 
like my son, who's six feet, six inches tall and like naturally good at sports, didn't have that growing up. And sure, he dealt with his own strength of challenges, but he never questioned where he was going to sleep or what was going to be the, you know, the thing that allowed us to eat next. So um, those childhood drivers are so critical. And we just have to be aware that often adults are carrying around a bag of rocks with them. And the more that we're sympathetic and realize that often something lays beneath the surface um, and to really do our best just to be understanding and compassionate about that stuff can be a real difference maker in how close we have other relationships that we have are. And the closer that we get with people, our clients, the more likely they are to actually really listen and start implementing a lot of those things that maybe the the previous you know iteration the the one of five suggestions that get implemented uh, missed out on. Yeah, you so you bring up a really good important point. I'm glad you said this because it, the idea around this isn't if we think about it from like an application standpoint, like the idea isn't to just transform into a therapist that says, Hey, you've got these childhood issues. Let's start working through those together. You're operating from your 14 year old self. Not any, anybody that's been to therapy knows how this goes. It's pretty enlightening and eye opening, right? But that's a different skill set altogether. So I think just to like hammer home what you just said, which I think is important is just if nothing else, like, how, okay, what do we do with this information, right? Okay, Brendan, that's great. Good to know that. But like, what do I do with it? How do, when I'm working with clients, it's no, I think there's two steps. One is if nothing else, exactly what Mike said, it's just developing a, le a level of sympathy or empathy uh, and compassion, knowing that there could be more at play than just what you, that what you see in your interactions, right? Like it's, it's easy to get frustrated when, when somebody's not doing what they're supposed to do, or they're not engaging or not listening, not following up, just maybe taking a step back and going, okay, there may be more at play here than I even really realize, right? Like how, what, what else could be going on? I think that's first and foremost, like the, the bare minimum, but then the next step, the next piece of it is even if you're, if you want to go to the next step, it's not doing therapy, but if you, even if you help unearth this realization, even if you help bring awareness to the fact that they had this experience and that's why they behave the way that's why they can't save the money that they need to save that in and of itself is powerful enough, right? It's not that you have to go and start working through what to do about it, but even being able to help somebody have this moment or this realization awareness. and understand awareness, right? I think that's awareness is probably the best word, right? So the first step is compassion. The second step is just creating awareness, but there's no, there shouldn't be an expectation that uh, helping somebody uncover that, creating awareness around it, it. There shouldn't be an expectation that then you have to go help them fix that and solve the problem. No, that's where there are other people, other specialists and other, yeah. and other areas that help with that kind of stuff. Well, and, and I think it's really important, you know, that every advisor going in to meet with people for the first time, the second or even years down the road is to remember the golden rule, which is it's not about you. And, and, and often that can come as a big surprise because we all have ego and we've all got pride, but especially when we start thinking like, why is this person not following my brilliant suggestions <laughs> and all these wonderful things that I can do to help them again, it's not about you. And one of the practices that I've got within, you know, my personal relationship with my fiance is that I do my best um, 
you know, whenever we're going to go out on a date, and we've been together for 13 years now, is to say to myself going into that date is, I'm going to be a great date. I'm going to be a great date. And the same thing can take place when you're going into meetings with people, which is, it's not about me. It's about mm. them and realizing that, you know, who knows uh, what moment they had right before they walked in the office. Did they just come from a very stressful work environment? Were one of their kids ill? Much less what happened 20 years ago that could have been traumatic in their past. And so that compassion, awareness, and realizing it's not about us is really, really important. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, sorry, Rory, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Randy. Yeah, no, I, I think it's funny. So in the uh, in some of the trainings that I do with advisors and, and, and it, it, by the way, it's like, so advisors and there's advisors around the world and some of the trainings that I do, one of the things that's because like almost everybody says, no matter the country, no matter like, so technical knowledge, right? Like taxes, tax strategy and investments and pensions, like that can vary from country to country. One thing that's been fascinating is how people transcend borders, how these, yeah. these psychological behavioral things, they don't stick within the confines of the borders that you live in. Like people all around the world are having these same conversations, these same issues uh, with clients. One of the things that's been like, eye opening to me is we'll go through these trainings and we'll kind of talk through these principles of, you know, how to connect better, how to create trust right out of the gate, how to uncover what's important and deliver value so that people actually follow through. And, and one of the themes that kind of runs through all that, that by the end, everybody says at some point is they're like, you know, one of the things that I'm like, kind of like it's become apparent to me is it's, I just have to reframe my mindset to just, it's, it's about them and meeting them when meeting clients where they're at and trying to do a better job of understanding where they're at. Right. And not making it about me, but asking them questions or when I deliver advice, not saying like, Hey, here are the things that you should do, but asking, just even simply asking like, okay, here are some of the recommendations we have. What do you think is the most important thing to do first? And by the way, when they tell you what they think they should do, it's going to be infinitely more powerful than you giving them the exact same advice. Or anybody that's been married or has a partner or fiance, like, you know how it goes. You tell them, you say something that they need to do. It falls on deaf ears. Yeah. A month later, they come back. They're like, hey, I had this great idea. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, 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 hang on. I told you a month ago. It's like, your ideas will never be as powerful as the realization and the ideas of the, uh, on their own, right? So why would we not try to cultivate that same dynamic with clients. Right. And that's what, so back to this whole point of it, I wanted to just add on to what Mike said, because I hear it literally at some point with almost everybody, it's like, you know, I just got, it's about making it more about the client and where they're at and what they need and meeting them where they're at. And it's this like such a simple thing that if you can do it, it makes the world a difference, but it's simple. It's just not easy to execute on. Well, the, the key thing is getting out of your own way and, yeah. you know, and, and the simplicity is often the most confounding thing for people when they think I need to be insightful. I need to bring these people over to my side. And, you know, when you were uh, sharing that, Brendan, I couldn't help but, you know, laugh because you said, yeah, if I, if I tell my significant other, this is what you need to do. Um, well, my significant, and that's the response you get, then you're blessed because my significant other, when I tell her what to do, the reaction is, uh, not exactly very pleasant. And so now I figured out what's very important is that if I invite somebody to do something versus telling them, I get a dramatically different response. So, but I love that piece that you talked about is meeting people where they are. That is so critical in every relationship. 
that is going to be meaningful and is going to last. Yeah. 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 I read one of my favorite books, uh, Brendan Mike, is by Dr. Mark Goldstein called Just Listen. Uh, and he talks about getting someone's there. There is that right there? <laughs> it's not. It, no, it's not. It's not displayed, <laughs> but it's sitting right over there. Okay, oh, sorry. Go ahead. He's wonderful. He's yeah. UCLA uh, guy. Uh, I he's just listened, and he has uh, a book called The Real Influence, uh, where he talks about getting to somebody's there. There, it's a wonderful book. All right, I got to bump it up the list, and maybe next yeah. time I'm on here, maybe yeah. next time it'll be, well, it'll be in the background. See it back there. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us here, Brendan. I know you have a number of resources out there. If our audience wants to you know, find more of your, your content out there. What's the best way to do so? Yeah. So it's kind of, I guess, depends on what you like, what you prefer. So meeting people where they're at, right. You got a couple different options, by the way, I was going to add this on the meeting people where they're at. Uh, it's kind of, this is another one of those things that's simple, but when you hear it, you're like, ah, oh, so how do you meet people where they're at? Right. Well, meeting people where they're at requires knowing where they're at. So unless you have the ability to read minds, you won't be able to predict where somebody's at, right? And if you do have the ability to read minds, please email me after yeah. this. I would love to learn a thing or two or just like use you in a lot of different ways. Um, but you probably don't, right? So what's the best way to meet somebody where they're at? You should ask them. Right? Back to this idea around the power of questions. So ask somebody where they're at. So for example, you have a, um, you have a new potential client that reaches out because they want to meet. Well, the most important, the best thing you can do is meet them where they're at, not try to tell them all the great things that you do. And like, hey, I do investments and tax planning and cash flow and estate planning and insurance. If we look at the whole thing. It's like, meet them where they're at, right? So why are they there? Well, they're there because they just changed jobs. They now have a 401k they need to roll over and they've started thinking more about retirement, right? Well, well, why'd they start thinking more about retirement? Well, because this COVID thing happened and I was working from home and I realized that I don't really like working as much as I thought I enjoyed my time away. So now I want to start thinking if I, I want to start looking if I can do it sooner, right? You wouldn't know any of these things. And well, let me take it a step further, by the way. Okay. Well, why, why are we looking at it now instead of next year? Well, you know, basically, cause I tried to, I was last week, I was trying to do it by myself. I was trying to like map out these numbers and see if I could come up with a way to do it, how to invest it. And it was just a lot of time, effort and energy that I don't really want to spend. And I want an expert to help me with it. So literally what you've done is just uncovered everything about why they're there and what they need to know. So instead of saying, Hey, uh, you need to, we do tax planning and investments and cash flow and retirement projections and blah, 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 blah. You can speak directly to what they want and what they need, right? So yeah, okay, that's great. We help people do exactly what you're looking for. We help map out for them so they don't have to exactly when they can retire. We can take a look and see if you can do that in two years, right? Not, we could do your estate planning and your insurance and your tax planning, which is all fine. That's great. Those are great services, right? But like you're meeting them where they're at, right? Tell, catering to what they want and not what you do. But how do you know that? How do, can you meet them where they're at? You should have to ask the right questions to get the right information. Ask better questions, get better answers. Right? So, okay. Now back to your original question. Sorry, you can tell I get passionate about this stuff. Um, so I've got, if you like listening to podcasts, um, the podcast is called the human side of money. We talk about this stuff all the time. Um, you, I'm active on Twitter and LinkedIn. If you're on social media, or if you can check out the website, it's wiredplanning.com. Um, that, that tells us a little bit more about, what we do, what the mission is. Uh, and that's where you can sign up for what may be our most popular thing. It's the monthly newsletter that we send out with a collection of resources on basically anything and everything you need to know about applying the human side of, of life to the advice and the work that you do. Awesome. I will list all that in the show notes, Brandon. Thank you so much for coming on, Mike. Thanks for joining me as well. Thanks guys. Yeah. Really appreciate the time.
Right, yeah, enjoyed one. it. All opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Arrowroot Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative of future results.